So um, I'm going to talk for a little bit and then we'll have hopefully a good chunk of time for Q&A. So if you've got questions, that's why we're doing it. So do text in and then Wayne will kind of, kind of host that a bit as, um, as we go through. We're going to dive right in because we've got a big topic to talk about and uh, not a lot of time to do it. Chances are, if you're here today and you're a youth leader or a church leader and just you interact with and work with young people, transgender will already be very much on your radar. It's uh, one of, if not the biggest kind of topic in what I call cultural conversation and discussion and debate. And especially for our teenagers, it's right in the forefront of their minds. It's kind of all around them, maybe in their own lives and the lives of those around them. And what we're going to try and talk about, particularly in our time today, is how, therefore, should we best pastor and disciple our young people? And that's kind of the key question we're focusing on. If you're there on Tuesday when I spoke on trans in the tough questions, there I was given kind of a, a general introduction on how do we respond as Christians to the subject. And if you, out of interest, who was there? It's helpful for me to know, actually. Okay, some of them not. There'll be some overlap, but some not. And if you weren't there, I'd recommend get the download. That's a little bit of part one, how in general we respond as Christians. And this is how we apply that in church life. But don't worry, this should make sense even without having heard that. And so really want us to ask, how do we help our young people to navigate life and to follow Jesus in our cultural moment when this is such a big, discussed and debated uh, topic? And I guess we're particularly going to focus on how would we as leaders as members of our churches, support and love and walk alongside those who themselves identify as trans or who are in some way kind of questioning and exploring their own gender identity. We're going to go fairly quickly through three sections. We're going to look at understanding first, because we really can't respond well until we understand. Then we're going to look at preparing. Actually, how do we do a load of background work which prepares our young people, kind of equips our young people <laughs> to live in this moment and to live out a life following Christ in this moment? And then we'll talk about walking. What would it look like? What principles can we apply to actually walk with young people for whom this might be a real-life issue they themselves are navigating? And then we'll have some Q&A. And I kind of want to encourage you, I guess, to see this as a bit of a start of a journey. This is a very big, very complex topic, and there'll be loads of stones we leave unturned today. So I want to encourage you to see this as a day to get a bit of a gripping understanding, and then actually to go away and read some stuff, watch some stuff, listen to some stuff, actually, to get really clued up and to kind of understand this well, to best serve our young people. So let's start off with understanding. This is so important because it is a complex topic. It's so important because Christians often don't understand things about um, transgender and LGBT stuff in general. And we do two things then. Sometimes we stay really quiet because we're really fearful. Sometimes actually we speak a lot, but we're speaking without a good level of understanding and that can be very damaging and harmful as well. So it's always important first to stop and to make sure we actually know what we're talking about and are understanding well. So let's just define a few key terms, talk about some key topics, uh, key uh, concepts. Transgender is a broad term covering different experiences of and expressions of an incongruence between biological sex and gender identity. And so in there we've got two different things. We've got biological sex, which is about what the body says about whether someone is male or whether someone is female. So that's looking at physical anatomy. Um, our, our gonads, that's our internal reproductive systems, our sexual anatomy externally, also looking at our, our genes, our chromosomes, the uh, genetic coding that's inside every cell of our body. And for the vast majority of people, the body is clear as to whether it is male or whether it is female in those kind of physical ways. But then gender identity is someone's personal internal sense of being a man or a woman or being neither. It's internally whether you feel that you are a man or a woman or you may not feel you fit into those boxes and so perhaps you're kind of somewhere in between that. 
And for the vast majority of people, those two things line up. That your body and your internal self or your kind of mind say the same thing. That's what we call cisgender. You might hear that term used. That means the body and the mind are kind of agreeing on your sexed and gendered identity. But for a small number of people, there is a genuine experience of a disconnect or a, a conflict, a difference between those two things. The body might say an individual is male, but actually internally they don't really feel they fit in as a man or as a woman. They're not quite sure what they are. Or uh, the body might say uh, the individual is female, but internally they feel, strongly feel that actually they're a man. And it's important to realize for some people that's a very genuine experience. That's really how they experience life and experience themselves uh, to be. And so transgender is a broad term which covers lots of different experiences and expressions of that. And so under the transgender uh, kind of term, terms like non-binary, gender queer, gender fluid, all of those would be expressions of this larger thing of there's some question between what the body is saying, what the internal self is saying about who we are as sexed and as gendered individuals. We should then also just define uh, gender dysphoria, because you'll hear this term used in the discussion as well. Gender dysphoria is uh, really the medical term, the medical diagnosis for when that disconnect between the body and mind, biological sex and gender identity, causes someone distress. So when there's real distress and pain and confusion over this, a medical diagnosis would be of gender dysphoria. And that can be a a very distressing thing. I've said already this can be a very real experience for people, just how people just kind of uh, experience life, how people find themselves to be experiencing life. It can be incredibly painful, incredibly distressing. Some of my friends who have gender dysphoria tell me things like it's like they look in a mirror and actually when the person looks back in the mirror, it feels like it's not them. And actually some say it's too painful to look in the mirror because it's such a stark reminder of the fact that their body doesn't line up with how they feel themselves to be. Another one of my friends says that actually they uh, just live with this such kind of discomfort with their body because the body doesn't match how they feel that they find themselves uh, kind of thinking about and longing to self-mutilate, to chop off bits of their body uh, just because it's, it's just so painful. There are certain parts of their body that cause them so much distress. For some people, this is a really real, really painful, distressing, uh, debilitating sometimes even uh, aspects of their uh, experience of life. And then also let's just define intersex, because intersex is often brought into conversations about uh, trans, about gender dysphoria, and used in certain arguments, but used, I think, in an unhelpful way, because it's actually quite a different phenomenon, and therefore a Christian response, there'd be some similarity, but there'd be some difference. Intersex is a broad term for a variety of conditions where physical anatomy does not line up with the typical, typical definitions of male or female. So it's where in the physical body there is some level of variation from the expected pattern for either male or female. Now the vast majority of intersex conditions, actually, biological sex is clear. There is just one element of variation from what is usually expected. In some cases, a very small number of cases, there is genuine ambiguity over whether an individual is male or female. It's possible to have both male and female genitalia, male and female um, internal reproductive systems, to have chromosomes like XXY, so you've got, in a sense, both the female pattern and the male pattern. What's important to notice is that this is a purely bodily, biological thing. This is an ambiguity in the body in biological sex. It doesn't necessarily have an impact on gender identity. So you see how trans is a body, internal self, or body-mind kind of thing. Intersex is a purely bodily thing. Now, of course, people who have intersex conditions have to work through what's my gender identity and how do I live that out. But actually, it's a separate thing, and it's helpful to recognize they're different and keep them a bit separated, because intersex tends to be misused to make certain arguments in uh, the transgender debate. 
One other thing I should have said earlier, we've got gender identity as our internal sense of who we are. It's important to distinguish that from gender expression. Gender identity is how I feel inside. Gender expression, that is, how I uh, present myself as a gendered being, how I live out my life. So don't assume that because someone says their gender identity is, say, as a woman, even if their body says they're male, that they are choosing to live life as a woman. That's a separate thing. You feel one thing, but what you then choose to do with that is a separate thing. And again, as we think ethically and in a Christian way about this, that's a very important distinction for us to make. Just two other little um, kind of comments to make on understanding. One is just to note the importance of language. You'll probably be aware of this already. Uh, language is... Um, kind of a, a, a fractious topic or matter when we come to a topic like this. And actually using the wrong kind of language, the wrong kind of terms can immediately cause someone to stop listening to us, can immediately kind of close down the conversation, can cause someone to assume so much about what we think. There are so many words that have a definition, but then their connotations, the like associations that come with them, are um, very damaging. So it's always worth being very careful. So I deliberately choose, in the way I use language, I deliberately choose to follow, in a sense, the language that secular people and organizations would use because I'm building a bridge. So actually, I learned my terminology from people like Stonewall, who from almost everything else I would disagree with, rather than on some anti-LGBT campaigners who, although often I don't agree with the heart by far, but some of the philosophy and biology and stuff I might agree with. But actually, I want to have constructive conversations, so I'm very careful about the language I use. So a worked example for you, actually, in the handbook, this seminar was called Transgenderism, Transgenderism which actually was a, a printing error. We agreed we weren't going to call it that, and various things uh, just sort of slipped through. That's deemed a very offensive term in the transgender community. It carries a lot of baggage with it, so that's a term we shouldn't use. As soon as you start talking about transgenderism, any person who knows something about this topic uh, is thinking certain things about what you believe and is not going to trust you, not going to want to talk to you. So just one of the things we need to work on, actually, is learning the language to use and being careful with that. Also understanding, just to note, there is a huge level of variation in experiences of uh, kind of transgender life experience and of gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria is a very complex phenomenon. There are a huge uh, variety of types of gender dysphoria, of kind of roots and causes. That's really the most controversial part of the cultural conversation. But I'm confident enough to say there is a huge variety of roots and causes behind a gender dysphoria, which means that everyone's experience is different. And there's this helpful phrase, if you met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. And I think that's pretty much true. So what that helps us pastorally practically is when you meet a trans person or when someone in your youth group comes out to you as trans or says they're questioning their gender identity, don't think, oh yeah, I went to the cinema, seminar, I know what that term means, I understand this, I know what to say to you. Actually, we've got to treat people as individuals. We, just because we understand terms and concepts doesn't mean we understand what's going on in this person's life and what they're actually trying to say to us. And we'll get onto this later, but always actually meeting the person as an individual, hearing their individual story is really, really important so we can best respond and best love them. So that's a bit of a, a working understanding to get us going, to help us on a way from which then we can talk about how we do stuff in, in our church context. And we're going to start by talking about preparing. And what I mean really here is how do we build a culture in, in our churches and in our youth groups where young people are kind of best equipped to follow Jesus if they do find that they're questioning their own gender identity? Or for those who aren't questioning their gender identity, how do we best create a culture where actually they're equipped to faithfully follow Jesus in our cultural moment when they're hearing so many different viewpoints uh, on these kind of topics? 
In a sense, what we're saying is we need to dig down below the surface. Always, really, when we get big cultural issues, big ethical issues, we don't really, as Christians, want to respond on the top level of what's going on. You want to dig below. What are the foundations? What's underlying this? Where does this come from? Why does this make sense to people? That's the place we need to apply. What does the Word of God say? That's the place, really, we need to respond. So this is all kind of, you know, well back preparatory work, well before we get to the topic of transgender. The most important thing here, I think, is identity. For a trans, uh, in a secular perspective, trans is often understood as an identity issue, as a, a finding of the true self and kind of embracing that and accepting that and uh, expressing that in how we live. If you're there on Tuesday in the Tough Questions seminar, this is where I really focused in on our head response. And again, I'd recommend kind of get the download for that if you weren't there because I did it in more detail there. On a secular perspective, transgender is the primary example of what we're calling internal identity narrative. That's the idea that to answer the question, who am I? You need to look inside of yourself and you ask, well, what do I feel and what do I desire? And when you find your feelings and desires, that is who you are. And therefore, because it's who you are, you need to embrace that and express that in order to find your, uh, your, kind of your best life. That's the narrative we see in celebrity coming out stories. When people who are trans, you read things like, I, I accepted who I truly was. I let the real me out. Caitlyn Jenner talks about the fact there was this woman trapped in her, inside of her all her life, but finally she realized she had to let her be free and have a life. It's this, the real me is inside, and therefore I'm going to express that, embrace that, and live that out. And that's why there are people in our culture who genuinely believe the statement, women can have penises. Because to them, actually, it's completely irrelevant what the body says. They really believe the real person's inside, so of course women can have penis, so women could have any kind of body. People really believe that because this is such a strong cultural narrative of how we believe identity uh, is actually formed. And so our young people are constantly being told that their gender identity and actually their sexual orientation and all manner of other things are who they are. The stuff inside is who they are. And therefore they're being told they need to embrace that and express that to have their best life. That's why the Christian message on sexuality and gender seems so um, kind of incomprehensible to many young people, even many non-young people in our churches. But what we've got to observe is there are real problems with internal identity. It's a really bad, bad way of getting your sense of who you are. An identity built on your feelings and desires is unstable because our feelings and desires change. We all know that. Even gender identity, good studies show our gender identity, our sense of self changes uh, over our lifetime. They change, they can contradict. If I desire both this and this, and I can't have both, they can't go together, well, which one is really me? Which one do I embrace to find my best life? And we all know there are certain feelings or desires we might find inside ourselves which aren't good. A desire to kill, say, in our culture, we won't go, well, this is who I am. doesn't matter what anyone else says, you can't stop me, it's who I am, I have to express it. No one actually believes or really follows through the internal identity narrative. Really, we look inside ourselves and say, well, culture says I should be this or this, and I find this, so I'm taking out this one. This is who I want to be. We're not actually doing what we even say we're doing. And there's just no authority behind it. Who says that who you are comes from what you find inside? Why not what you find outside? Why not what other people say? No, on what basis do we actually say that? Internal identity really doesn't work. And so we need to think, well, what's the alternative? We do need to know who we are. That's a, a vitally important thing for human flourishing. And the alternative is not an internal identity, not an external identity from other people and what they think of us. It's a divine identity, an identity given to us wholesale by God. 
in what God says over us and what God speaks to us and in part he speaks to us through our bodies. So this isn't discovered inside of us, it's not achieved through what we do, it's not uh, kind of earned from other people as they look on us and evaluate us, it's given to us by God and it's unchanging, so it's solid, it's stable, it can truly be life-giving to us and that includes our sex identity as male or female. It's really striking in Genesis 1, we're in the image of God. That's the, the fundamental identity truth for any human being, given that by the words that God spoken over us. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. It's fascinating, that's placed in parallel. In the same way we're given the image of God, it's spoken over us, this is who you are, because God says it's who you are. We're given our identity as male or female by God, spoken to us in our body. It's who you are, because it's what God says you are. And so we need to prepare our young people by getting them to, helping them have a healthy sense of identity. Seeing that our identity should always be based on what God says about us. That's the only solid, life-giving way of finding who we are. Uh, And we can do that completely unrelated to trans. You see, actually, that relates to so many things in life. That's such an important message, full stop, for all of us in Christian life, even before we get to the topic of transgender. And so in our day and age, one of the most important things for us to teach and disciple our young people in is on a healthy understanding of how identity works and what identity as a human created by God and then for those in Christ as a Christian actually looks like. So I think we do that by teaching and talking. In any context, we do that kind of thing and actually doing times when we're teaching identity. I now, just in church context in general, will bring identity into most things I do. Anytime I get to a paragraph actually affirming identity, just I've realized that is the, one of the most important things culturally we need to be doing. I think make it part of your prayers for your youth. Just in general, when you're praying for them, pray it. They would know that have a revelation from God of who they are, who he says they are. But also increasingly, I, when I get to pray for people, you know, with people, one or one or small groups or whatever, I'm so often, I, I pray about their identity. Because you're getting kind of a triple whammy, actually, because God's going to answer the prayer and help them to see, hear, uh, experience their identity. They're going to hear you affirming their identity, so they're being reminded of their identity. And also you hear it as you get reminded of your identity as well. It's a really powerful thing, actually, to pray with people about them knowing their God-given identity. And I think we also uh, put this into practice. We need to relate to our young people based on divine identity. So we relate to our young people in such a way it shows their worth is not based on what they do, which is what the education system is often telling them. Their worth is not based on what they feel or what they find inside, which is what the culture around them is telling them. Actually, their worth is based on the fact they're created by God in his image and they're loved by him. And we are kind of uniquely placed to uh, show through our, just our very actions, our interactions with our young people to show them who they really are. So getting identity right is a vital bit of preparatory work to help our young people in our churches in general to navigate things around this topic. Then getting a bit closer to the specific topic, we just talk about stereotypes. Gender stereotypes are a really important thing to talk about in relation to transgender because in large part, transgender does depend on gender stereotypes. If you say that your gender identity is uh, disconnected or it's, uh, your body is irrelevant to your gender identity, the question becomes, well, what is left to determine whether you're a man or a woman? What does it mean to feel like a man or a woman? And in part, it's to do with gender stereotypes. Not entirely, actually, but in part, it's to do with gender stereotypes and the boxes we feel we need to fit in. And if we don't feel we fit in, then we feel there must be a different answer. 
And so stereotypes actually, or unbiblical, unhelpful gender stereotypes can aggravate, can maybe even actually cause gender dysphoria. I've got a friend who uh, identifies as a male, transe- male transsexual, so biologically male, choosing to transition to live as a woman. And they say the reason they experience gender dysphoria is because of the restrictive stereotypes that culture, that actually say Christian culture, has placed upon them. And they think if they hadn't had that experience, they wouldn't have experienced gender dysphoria. In some cases, only some, gender dysphoria can actually be uh, potentially caused, certainly hugely aggravated by stereotypes. Because if you constantly feel you don't fit into the man box, even though you've got a male body, then especially in our culture, you're going to think, well, then obviously, actually, I should be over in the women box. That's who I really am. And I expect most of us would admit that we as churches have been guilty of propagating unbiblical stereotypes of what it means to be a man or a woman. They're very popular in culture, but actually I think we have to put our hands up and say we have very much done that too. And so we need to understand what does the Bible actually say about what it means and what it looks like to live out our sex identities, to live out our biological sex. Firstly, recognizing that it's linked to the thing we said already on identity. Our identity as male or female is given to us by God. It's not something you create by performing. It's not you attain the status of being a man or attain the status of being a woman. It's you are a man or you are a woman because God says you are and speaks to you about who you are in your body. That's the kind of the foundation of it, the first step of it. And then I think the Bible is surprising in this. I think there are only two things the Bible says about what it means to live out your uh, biological sex in the way you live your life. I think it talks about our external presentation. So actually we should be visible to others and kind of identifiable to others in line with our biological sex. Which actually starts in the bodies God's given us. The very fact our bodies look different with our secondary sex characteristics. And then continues into kind of clothing and other cultural markers of what it means to physically present as a man or as a woman. I think you make that case biblically from Deuteronomy 22, from 1 Corinthians 11, from the fact that the Bible... uh, speaks negatively of any cross-gender or cross-sex activity um, and identification with the other sex or any attempt to um, kind of trick other people into thinking or not of the biological sex your body says it is. That's one thing. We are to live in such a way that people observe from our external presentation our sexed identities. And then I think the Bible talks about different roles for men and women in marriage and in church leadership. Beyond that, I don't think it says anything. We have put this whole level of levels of kind of stereotypes of what it means to be a man and a woman, which I am yet to be convinced there's any biblical evidence uh, or support for. The reality is, I think, God says this is who you are. In your body, in our bodies, he speaks to us, you are male or female, and therefore you have the freedom to be how you are. Who you are, your identity is static and stable, and therefore all the kind of things culture evaluates us as men or women by actually, they're just how you are, and they don't affect actually your kind of sex identity. And that's been really significant for me. I I experienced a level of gender dysphoria as a child, and that abated as it does for many um, children kind of through my teen years. But always lived with the sense of I'm not really um, a real man. Like men's events at that church, well, I didn't go, frankly. They were the worst nightmare for me. Stag dudes, I didn't go. I felt like such a, like a fraud. So like I didn't fit in. I was so uncomfortable in those contexts. But actually, in the last few years, God has wonderfully helped me realize, no, I'm a man because he says I'm a man. 
He's spoken to me in my body, and I don't have to achieve that. I don't have to earn the status of being a man. I'm a man because God says I'm a man. And I've gradually actually grown to become much more comfortable in how I am because I know who I am. So it means I'm embracing my love of Downton Abbey and of musicals and afternoon tea and the fact I can be a bit flamboyant sometimes. It means actually it's perfectly okay that I would genuinely much prefer an afternoon of craft and then going out for cocktails than I would paintballing and going out for steak. It doesn't change the fact that I'm a man. And God says I'm a man, and God loves that I'm free to be how I am, and actually probably how he's wired me in my personality and my likes and my dislikes. And I reckon there are a whole host of people in our churches who feel they don't really make it as a man or don't really make it as a woman. And I am worried that we as churches are uh, contributing at least to that in the stereotypes we bring. And I think actually by attacking those stereotypes, we can make a big difference. I should note here, this I think will help loads of people in our churches. It will help some people with gender dysphoria to some extent, but this will not solve gender dysphoria for everyone. So please don't hear a very simplistic, if we get a real stereotype, gender dysphoria will end. I don't think that's true. And I think it would be um, unhelpful if we do uh, suggest that to those who experience quite extreme gender dysphoria. But I do think it's one of the steps we need to take. And so how do we do that? How do we tackle stereotypes? I think we do it first actually leading by example, being confident in who we are. In the last few years, as I've kind of begun to be more confident in, in how I am and just to be more comfortable to uh, express how I find myself uh, to be, I've actually had parents who have thanked me for modelling to their sons a different form of masculinity. We get to lead by example, actually. It's often the most powerful way we're teaching our young people. We can do that in being comfortable, actually, in how we are because we know who we are. I think we need to do it in watching our words, especially when it comes to jokes and when it comes to illustrations. If you do any level of you know, public speaking or teaching in a youth context, or even just conversations, actually, our illustrations often reaffirm unhelpful, unbiblical gender stereotypes. Jokes often do the same. I feel quite strongly we need to actually really strongly push back on jokes around gender and stuff. It's very uh, unhelpful, I think, and reinforces these kind of things. And I would, this is more controversial, I would say think about our events. I personally question the need for gendered events. And if you do decide to do them, think really carefully about what messages you're sending. If your gendered events are always you know, a FIFA night for the boys and a craft night for the girls, what message are you sending about what it means to be a man or a woman? And it's actually helpful. I think that's a really challenging thing we need to think through. So stereotypes is a really key practical thing we should be thinking about working on. And then the final thing for preparing is safe spaces. We want to create our churches and youth groups to be safe spaces for everyone to talk about different things they're wrestling with and questioning with and experiencing in their lives. We want our youth groups to be safe places for young people who are identifying as trans or questioning their gender identity to feel comfortable to share about that. In fact, we want our youth groups to be the place that people think it's obvious to share. When actually they're beginning to question their gender identity, it should be that people think, obviously, the first people I'm going to talk to are my friends at church and my youth leaders. Obviously, that's the place I most love. That should be our end goal. We should be the place people want to turn and naturally turn when this kind of thing arises in their lives. We want a culture where everyone knows they can be honest and real about what's going on in their lives and they'll know they're still be loved. We want a culture they know they can tell us anything of what they're feeling or even what they're doing and they know they will still be loved. We want to create a safe space in that way. I think we do that again by leading by example. I think actually it's really important that we as leaders in an appropriate and wise way are vulnerable and lead by um, example in this admitting our areas of struggles or suffering or questionings we have. Because our role as leaders is not to make ourselves look good, it's to make Jesus look good. 
And in fact, you're leading young people and these young people are looking and they're seeing this person still loves Jesus and follows Jesus with all they have, even in the midst of suffering and pain and confusion and difficulty. That makes Jesus look really good. Actually, the more difficult life is and yet you still follow him, the better Jesus looks. Actually, we need to be honest and real with our young people and that makes people feel safe to be honest and real about their lives. And so for me, in my life... um, that means I you know, am regularly talking publicly to hundreds of people about having had depression, about having had counselling, about the fact I'm gay or same-sex attracted, uh, about my own kind of questions about my gender identity. My dear parents get the occasional email, by the way, I'm going to be talking in a group where you are with hundreds of people about this very personal thing or this very personal thing at the weekend. But actually it means people feel safe and open, actually, if he can stand up there and say that, then actually I can be honest and real here. And kind of almost... Um, normalizing things or kind of making things not a big deal. That's why I talk so openly and relaxedly about the fact I'm same-sex attracted, because it's not a big deal. Jesus still loves me, and I can still follow him as someone who's single and celibate, and I just want to show him just my very tone of talking about it, that I genuinely believe it's not a big deal, and I have no shame about talking about that. And that creates a culture of, wow, the young, the young gay person in your youth group thinks, wow, I can talk to him about this, or the young trans person thinks, wow, I can talk to him about this. There's kind of real power we can uh, exert just in how we talk about our own lives. For safe spaces, language is, again, really important. We talked a bit earlier about using the right kind of words. Careless words will immediately make it an unsafe space. And on a topic like this, it is actually as simple as you can say one wrong sentence and a young person will never want to talk to you about this. And that's kind of a difficult thing to live with. If you talk about this a lot, that's a really difficult thing to live with, actually. But that's why we should give time to learning to speak well, just being very cautious and careful with the words we use. Again, I think just so important, there's no place for joking about gender identity or transgender. No place. To the level of our young people are doing it, I do feel we ought to step in and gently bring explanation and challenge on that. And I think for safe spaces, we want to create an us-as-well-as-them approach, not a them-and-us approach. So often in churches, especially when it comes to LGBT stuff, we kind of talk about it as an us and them thing. These gay people out there, these trans people out there, how we should respond out there. If you then are sitting as a Christian in the church and you experience gender dysphoria or you find yourself to be attracted to people of the same sex, you sit there thinking, oh, okay, so these people are out there. They're clearly not in here. Should I not be in here? And actually we, we kind of we, we ostracize people in that sense. We make them feel you don't fit here. These people are out there, but you don't fit here. We must have not an us and them approach, um, but an us as well as them approach. So actually, I think when we start talking in our groups about things about sexuality and gender, we should start explicitly with this is a real thing for us here. The expectation is that some of us in our groups will be experiencing these things. And also it happens that people outside of the church are also experiencing these things. And that then makes the young person for whom this is a real thing say, oh, yeah. It is okay I'm here. And, oh, yeah, I can talk about this. This is a safe space because there's an expectation that some of us will be experiencing this in this context and in our own lives. So those three things are, I hope, quite practical things, actually, we can put into action in our own context, which often actually aren't right on the uh, presenting topic, but actually they're background work which helps us then to help young people uh, live this out, to navigate all of this well. And finally, let's talk about walking. What does it look like to walk with people for whom this is a real issue. Maybe you and your youth group have got people who identify as transgender, maybe people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, maybe just young people who don't really kind of take on any of those uh, particular identity markers, but they're questioning their gender identity. They're not really sure who they feel themselves to be. 
how do we respond in those contexts? And I guess we're thinking both how do we respond in the initial conversation? If someone comes out to us, someone shares with us that that's how they're identifying or that's what they're experiencing. But then also over time, how do we walk with them and support them as we walk with them? I've just got a few uh, kind of quick fire principles, none of which will be very groundbreaking, I don't think. The first one is hopefully the obvious one. Our utter, utter, utter first priority must be to love our young person who's speaking to us and to make them know that they are loved. To help them know and experience that they are loved by God and they are loved by us. That should be our utter priority, especially the first time they're sharing with us. When they first come out to us, when you come out to someone, however nice the person is, it's a pretty scary thing. So even if you're the nicest youth leader in the world, if a young person comes out to you, that was a really scary thing for them to do. Because always there's that thing of, is this person going to reject me? What are they going to say? How are they going to respond? And your young people will know lots of stories, heartbreakingly lots of stories of Christians who literally were kicked out of their houses, kicked out of their churches, told never to tell anyone else again, all these horrific things. All those things will be going through their head if they've plucked up the courage to tell you what's going on. And so we, our first priority must make them be to make them know they are safe and they are loved. We want to affirm explicitly that everything they've told us or nothing they've told us makes any difference to how we feel about them. We love them. And even affirm nothing they go on to tell us is going to change the fact that we actually love them. And when we're doing this, I'm convinced we're putting divine identity into action because we're showing the way I feel about you isn't based on what you do isn't based on what you feel, it's based on what God says about you. That's one of these examples of putting divine identity into action. And I think really, particularly in a first conversation, when a young person first comes out to you, if actually as far as you get is them going away knowing that they are loved by God in you and this hasn't changed that, that's a huge victory. If that's as far as you get that conversation, that is absolutely fine. We don't need to get through all the theology, all the practical stuff and answer all the questions, actually. And sometimes, actually, the right thing to do is just to connect with the heart, actually. And if they go away knowing that, that is a huge victory because the conversation is started in the right place. The second principle, then, would be listening. Listening is so important because listening is loving. You can only really love someone if you listen to them and you value them as an individual. You get to know their own personal story, their own personal experience. I think this is so key here because I think when we listen to someone who's sharing with us about these kind of experiences in their life, we are showing that we care about them and their experience and them as an individual. We're not treating them as a statistic among the kind of concepts and the ideas and the definitions. Actually, we're showing, I care about you. I love you. I am listening to what's happening in your life and responding specifically to that. Listening helps someone to feel valued um, and uh, like they are significant, like they have worth because they're worth listening to. It's such an important thing that we can do. And listening also then will be key to responding well. I spoke about this fact, especially when it comes to gender identity, there's so much diversity in the experience of what's going on uh, that actually listening is literally important to be able to respond rightly until we've listened we've heard the story we've understood a little bit more what's going on we won't be well equipped to actually best respond to this individual to best love them and then to walk alongside them i think it's really important to acknowledge uh, pains and hurts many young people who talk to us about these kind of topics in a christian context will come with pains and hurts uh, many of which or some of which will have been experienced at the hands of christians and I think we should acknowledge those. When you're doing the listening, look out for actually the bits where the young person is showing you actually, this has really hurt me. This has really um, 
harm me, done damage to me. And we should acknowledge those things. We should legitimize them. Again, that's part of the loving, a part of the saying, I'm not rejecting you. Actually, I'm embracing you and loving you. I really strongly believe that actually where people and young people have been hurt by the church around these topics, it's appropriate that we apologize for that. You may sit there and think, well, I've never said anything like that. Well, I would never do anything like that. You know what? We're a body. We're a body. We're all members of the same body. And if it was a Christian who did this, then it was the body that did it. And it's right that we, on behalf of the body, apologize. It's, I think it's right that we do that. And also that's very powerful. Such a powerful way of expressing our love to the person we're walking with and talking to. And then there might come a point where you get to explore the truth of them. Ideally, you want this to be a kind of a, a thing on their uh, invitation, I think, their instigation. And it's deliberate enough for exploring the truth together. We want to explore, and, and we don't run straight to, okay, what does God say about whether or not I should transition? We explore things like identity. What does God say about who I am? About how I should find who I am? There's so much important background work, in a sense, and those are the places we start. Again, with ethical issues, so often there are specific biblical texts that are helpful, but actually the power is in the big story which makes sense of the ethical text. So the same with sexuality. You don't really work from the five or six passages that mention same-sex uh, activity. You work from the beauty of the picture of sex about Christ and the church. And when you see the beauty, of course the text makes sense. You don't really even need them, actually. It's the beauty of the bigger picture we should always work with. When it comes to trans, we should be talking about identity, looking at our creations, male and female, why we're created male and female, God's purpose in that, the, the beauty in that. And I think on topics like this, the best way for us to do this is to open the Bible with people. Because actually what we really want and what we really need is for God to speak through his word to an individual. For God the Spirit who wrote this book to speak through these words to an individual. So it isn't there walking on thinking, well, I'm going to try and do this because my youth leader said to do this. It's no, I know God has said this to me. And I know even in the midst of all this pain and this confusion, I don't feel like that's the way I want to go. God has said this. Actually, when we read the Bibles together, and we're helping each other unpick it, and we're exploring it through God's word. God does his work through his word. There's such power when he speaks to people directly in that way. He can convince people, he can work in people's hearts about these kind of truths in a way that you and I just don't, don't have the power to. I think the other helpful thing about that is when you're doing it literally by sitting around the Bible together, we are making it so clear that anything we say and we believe we hold to is because the Bible says it. We're saying this isn't because we've got this clever idea or we think this or we have this theory about this. Actually, no, the word of God says this. You can see it right before your eyes. We're showing the authority we're depending on in the, the, kind of the very way that we're doing it. And then finally, I think when it comes to transgender, for people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, we are to apply a biblical theology or biblical responses to suffering. So culture says that transgender is an identity issue. I don't think it is, as we've seen, actually. It doesn't work as a way to build your identity internally. I think in a, a, a biblical perspective, a biblical framework, it becomes a suffering issue. For some people, gender dysphoria is an experience of extreme suffering. For some people, it might be a lifelong experience of extreme suffering. But actually, we are equipped by the word of God to uh, respond to suffering. There's so many different ways the Bible talks about uh, how we do that, different ways the Bible equips us to walk through suffering in our own lives, in the lives of other people. And I think that's the way we can best uh, help uh, people who are walking with the pain of gender dysphoria and walking alongside them. The book um, by Andrew Rachel Wilson, The Life Never Expected, which isn't about this, but it's about all the various different ways the Bible helps us walk through suffering. That kind of resource would be so helpful, I think, in this situation. 
And there's always that thing of thinking, actually, the Bible says all these different ways, actually, of navigating, handling, responding to suffering. And always, because pastorally, we're thinking, okay, in this situation, which, which almost tool from that tool belt actually is the right one to bring in in this time? I mentioned in the seminar on Tuesday, I think the Bible speaks story with the explanation of why the world is not as it should be, why we know there are things we experience that are not as they should be, and the certain hope of coming glory and perfection in the new creation is vital when it comes to this topic. And then the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit in us, the church around us also, is I think a, a big part of what our response should be. But also looking more broadly at, at biblical responses to suffering. One final point here, just when it comes to transitioning and medical approaches, Obviously, the young person, hopefully the parents will be taking the primary lead on walking alongside them and those kind of questions and decisions and stuff. But it may be that young people are talking to us, uh, that parents (laughs) even are involving us as well. I think really my overall thing, having done a lot of reading and research and thinking all sorts about this over a long time, is I would just always encourage extreme, extreme caution in any, especially any medical uh, transitioning in young people. Uh, All the evidence (laughs) suggests it's really not a wise idea. Uh, puberty blockers are untested drugs could have all manner of problems in brain development and bone density we don't yet know recent study from Tavistock the General Entity Clinic just coming out initial results seems to suggest that actually the situation got worse for people on puberty blockers not, uh, not better which is very worrying cross-sex hormones uh, can give you blood clots you have to have regular liver tests can do all sorts of difficulties again could affect brain development we don't really know what they're doing actually they're unlicensed drugs they're not tested um, all the evidence suggests it's just not safe, it's just not wise. Um, and sexual assignment surgery as well can have huge complications, all kind of things. So I think just incredible caution on pure actually scientific and uh, kind of uh, reasonable grounds of caring for people and what seems most wise is where I really want to kind of start and encourage people there. And hopefully you'll notice in these uh, principles, we've got the combination of love and truth. Um, so often we get topics like this, and we're so torn about, do I do love or do I do truth? How do I kind of do the two together? But actually the two are the two sides of a coin. It's actually the best way to honor God's truth, his word, is to love people. Because God's word shows us that God loves all these people, and we are to love every single person. And the best way to love people is to go and bring God's truth, because God's truth is the life-giving truth that he brings to us. And so actually we need to try and remember there's these two sides of the same coin. It's not a dichotomy. Which one do I do? Oh, I've got to choose between two. Actually, no. We bring the two together in the way we respond. So understanding, preparing, walking, we've only scratched the surface very much. We'll cover a few more things in Q&A now. And as I said, let me encourage you to see this as a, a thing to go on and find out some more. In the next few weeks or so, I'll be posting uh, an annotated list of resources on this topic on the Think Theology blog, thinktheology.co.uk, um, either this month or early next month, which will have a whole lot of different sections and different topics on this uh, topic and recommended resources, which might be a helpful place to go to next. But let's uh, do some Q&A. Wayne's going to come and host that for us. Let's just start by thanking Andrew. That's incredible. So, so helpful. Okay, we've, we've got quite a few questions that have come through, um, many that you've touched on, uh, but let's just start, to s- people asking if we weren't to call it transgenderism, this seminar, what should we have called it, and um, could you just comment, if someone was wanting to find out what terms are offensive, um, particularly, particularly when language is subjective and stuff, like how would they go about finding out a bit more on that when they're not so connected in? 
Brilliant. Um, transgender, I think, is the kind of helpful term. It is kind of hard to find the, the abstract noun for this topic, actually, but transgender is the best one um, to use. Transgenderism tends to suggest either a kind of pathological condition or suggest um, a very kind of activist kind of thing, which is why most people object to it. Um, terms, yeah, it's difficult. So for definitions, I tend to go to Stonewall who are a very pro-LGBT um, kind of charity. As I said earlier, I disagree with most of what they say and what they do, but their extensive glossary in their website is really helpful for understanding actually how to, um, people use the language. Uh, they would be helpful there as well on some of the kind of terms not to use. In general, other than that, I think it's just uh, reading around a bit. It's just interacting with um, LGBT people. A really powerful thing to do, you know, if you're going to talk about LGBT stuff and you've got someone who's openly gay or trans in your youth group, would be actually can we have a conversation about how we can best talk about this? That's, I think, it's a really powerful way of showing the individual you're valuing them and of really learning. Um, so I think that. And almost, yeah, I think it is, it's, it's using the terminology you hear using secular stuff, not in conservative stuff often, especially American conservatives can use around helpful language. So I think just choosing which voices you're listening to on the language is the place to start. Um, this question says, should we restrict people struggling with sexual identity in what they do in church and with church membership? There was another question that came through of someone that is part of a youth group that is identifying as pansexual and is trying to work out their gender identity, but they love Jesus and they'd love to get baptised. Should, should they get baptised? Should they not get baptised? So, so church, church membership, baptism. So I think the helpful way to work through these questions is always to think, how would I treat a comparable situation? As much as we say we don't, we do think differently about LGBT stuff to how we think about anything else. <laughs> and so actually when you get the real-life pastoral topic, I think the first thing is, that, okay, let's convert this to a different situation. I've got a person who wants to be a member, baptised, whatever, and the equivalent is this. And then you've got to really clear, what is the equivalent? Is the equivalent that they're experiencing uh, a sinful desire and feeling? Or is the equivalent that they're in a level of sinful activity? That's obviously such an important distinction. And then it's thinking, okay, how would I treat that person in that situation? Looking back even actually, how have we reasoned that in the past? What have we done in situations like this in the past? And then actually treating the situation here uh, in the same way. Because there is no reason we should treat things any differently. So the distinction between our, uh, our desires and our sinful desires and our actions is a very important thing to have in there. But actually, then we shouldn't really be uh, navigating things any differently uh, between the two. Uh, this is hugely complicated on this topic because essential gender identity isn't a little aspect of your life you go off and do here, there, and there, the other. It's a much more day-in, day-out kind of continuous thing. Um, but I think my starting point will always be the same, that actually for, for baptism, I'd be looking for a genuine evidence of repentance, which doesn't mean everything has changed but it means an acknowledgement of a need for some things to, for the necessary things to change and probably steps showing willingness to move in that direction as I would in any situation where someone was living outside of God's will for them very clearly in that way or continually in that way before coming to Christ and the same really then actually through for membership and other stuff. Just then taking that a little bit further, practically there was a question about if you've got a young person that's, that's trying to work this stuff through, um, uh, they are Christian in your youth group, but they are female, then identifying as a male, and they've asked you to start calling them by the male name that they, um, they're seeing as themselves, and they're asking can they use the male toilets, how to navigate kind of that through. My first step there actually would be to see that as an opening to just get to know the young person and talk to them in general. I mean, maybe you already have in this context, actually, um, you know, actually to 
let's hear more of your story. Actually, I want to find out what's life like for you. Why is it you want to change your name? All this stuff, all which is doing the loving and the listening, the understanding. Um, when it comes to it, my personal view on names and pronouns is I will use what the person's uh, choosing to use. Um, I just think people, Christian, Christians are very divided on this. Some Christians will say using a pronoun that doesn't match someone's biological sex is stating a lie it's forcing us to lie or it's affirming somewhere, someone in the identity God doesn't desire for them to live out. I just don't think that's true. We use pronouns in our culture to refer to someone's gender identity. So you're not talking about their biology when you use a pronoun. You're talking about how they identify as their gender. So it's just not true that you're lying. Um, and I, I just think it's the best thing to keep communication. That's one of the things that will stop communication probably completely if you misgender by deliberately using wrong pronouns and stuff. So for me, I would be comfortable with that. Maybe it's more complex if a person is very much claiming to follow Christ. You then have to wrestle with a K. So we think this is what God wants for how they live their life. And if not, um, how do we as a church respond to that? I mean, uh, is it unrepentant sin? And then you have different ways of handling that. Um, the second part of that question was, oh, about toilets. Toilets are a lot more complex because you've, you're affecting more than just the individual. Um, awful lot more complex and I'm therefore not actually going to give an answer you need to talk to your safeguarding team and your elders um, to work together on an answer I am intending they don't know this yet to write a paper for my church as to why we should have a gender neutral toilet so all I want basically is on our disabled toilets a little sign which says gender neutral which means the person with gender dysphoria who is uncomfortable in our existing toilets or who is fearful of going to our existing toilets because of how people might view them has somewhere safe to go I think we should do that by having a gender neutral toilet you're not affirming secular ideas you wouldn't agree with you're caring for people for whom going into a sex um, location uh, is a very painful thing or feels like a very dangerous thing I think that's a really good practical step we can take to love and help people okay do you think transitioning by gender expression or possibly me- uh, medical intervention is ever appropriate for the small number of people with chronic distressing gender dysphoria this is the million dollar question this is the hardest, hardest question. I start, I start biblically. I think biblically we're called to live out our biological sex. I think biblically the definition of sin and rebellion against God is to go against creational intent. I think Romans 1 would imply that, which means I do feel that to actively choose to live out a general intent that's not in line with your biological sex is sinful. And therefore, is not what's best for us as well. It's the important thing to say. It's not just God says, jump through the hoop. I don't want you to do this. And therefore, you've got to do this. It's no, God says, I know you. I made you. I created you. I do know what's best for you. Which isn't to overlook the fact it will be very painful for someone who has acute gender dysphoria to remain in their biological sex as their gender identity. But I do think that's what God would um, call someone to. Which is why I think, I think it becomes a, a thing of suffering and how we uh, uh, navigate that through um, the question I'm not yet fully solved on, I have friends, uh, Christians who have acute gender dysphoria who will do certain things to manage their dysphoria. So the way they have their hair, their clothes will be, they, they identify with their biological sex, but um, most of them are biological female and basically kind of dress quite in quite a tomboyish way, as we would say. And that gives them a level of managing their gender dysphoria, which I think I'm comfortable with because I think their biological sex is still clear externally from their presentation and they're not choosing to try and identify with the other sex. That's actually a lot more difficult for an individual who's male because of culturally how we express biological sex and gender in, um, in a, our gender expression in our cultural things. So I think that 
is much more difficult. I think the other reason, so that I have lots of theological reasons, which actually I, I just don't think that's God's desire for people. I don't think that can be um, what looks like to faithfully follow Christ. I also think the little bit of research, and it is little we have, that talks about the long-term effects of gender transition isn't positive. There's very little research. There's lots of bad research, which is kind of short-term, one-year, small groups. It just doesn't really give us solid evidence at all, which shows fairly good results. The first few years can be uh, a great lesson of gender dysphoria. But the evidence we do have seems to suggest that five and particularly ten years onwards, uh, transitioning does not resolve people's gender dysphoria. And so I just think it's actually not the answer to help people. Medical professionals, I'm friendly with the Christian Medicate Fellowship. I have a good relationship with talking about this a lot. And they're saying they don't think it is helpful to people's distress levels actually to transition. So both theologically and practically, I think they both come together and say, no, I don't think it is the answer. And that's a wonderful actually confirmation of God's word. I think actually we see he does know best, even in the confusion and the pain that can bring. There's so many questions coming through. We're not going to have time to answer all of them. We're just going to do one or two more, and then we'll try and text you back and um, reply after after we finish the meetings. This one says, how do I best support a single... Oh, my phone's playing up. How do I best support a single mum who is struggling with life and now has a 13-year-old biological daughter who is identifying as male? She has been referred to a local support groups, but now is getting pressure to put her on the pill and to buy her binding top. Um, she's worried about these physical changes, so supporting kind of parents that are... I mean, that specific example... The immediate things that spring to mind are just to uh, be genuine church family for that, that dear lady. Um, uh, asking her outright, probably actually, what, what practical ways can we support you, actually? Well, there's the additional pressure already of being a single parent, and then there's the pressure of carrying all this as well, actually. What real practical ways can we love you and support you to take some of the other pressures off? So that would be a, an easy win, actually, whether that's you know meals, babysitting, cleaning, whatever it might be. Actually, there'd be some things that can be done there. I think then... For us as pastors or, or leaders to be, um, in a case like this, I guess, helping an individual to understand what's going on. Not that we should necessarily be the experts in culture, but actually we want to look after our people. And one of the ways to look after a person in this situation is to help them understand what it is the young person is saying and kind of uh, uh, navigating in that. Um, to be, yeah, just being to be alongside them in that. Parents often in these situations as well are, are wrestling with their own feelings, sometimes feelings of guilt sometimes feelings of grieving what they felt their child, what they felt their child's life was going to be like. Obviously, just the inevitable pain of watching your child go through pain. I think all of those things we'd want to be responding to and how we're seeking to love and care for um, a lady in this situation like this. And in terms of the actual kind of, uh, in terms of the decisions the child is making and that the parent is involved in those, I think just keeping open dialogue with the parent walking through that, being a soundboard for them to talk through, talk with. Um, I kind of don't want to say much more than that and not having experience and not being a parent and stuff, but those are my instincts really, I think, where we start. And elders, I think uh, we, we must recognize the importance of why God gives us elders. Elders are given to us as fathers of the church to father us, to care for us. And our elders should be brought in this situation not because they're the authority figures who come and sort things out, because they're the fathers who come and look after us. <laughs> and so elders should be involved in that situation because they should father hands on and help in that way.